two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today is a very special episode. It is part two of a two-part series of our first ever international roundtable featuring team members from the Accountability Lab, which is a global network that is finding new ways to shift societal norms, solve intractable challenges, and build unlikely networks for change. In part one, we discussed a ton of issues and heard amazing stories, and we're going to continue from there. Particularly, we'll be talking and continuing our conversation about the pandemic and start investigating the issues around systemic racism in different regions of the world. Now, if you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, I invite you to go back and listen to it. So much like last time, please allow me to introduce you to the members of this roundtable because we have a pretty large group here. So going from left to right on your podcasting dials, we first have Blair Glencourse. He's the founder and executive director of Accountability Lab, and he's based in Islamabad, Pakistan. Hi, Richard. Great to be back with you. Next to him is Desuba Konate. She is the Monitoring, Evaluation, and Learning Officer for Mali, and she is based in Bamako. Hello. And next to her is Ava Sander, the Country Director for Mexico, and she's based in Mexico City. Hola, everyone. And rounding out the table is Narayan Adhikari, the Country Director for Nepal, and he's based in Kathmandu. Hi, Richard. Nice to be here. So let's begin. What, and I'm going to start with Desuba on this one here. What is a particularly unique coronavirus-related issue in your region? So for example, in Canada and many other Western countries, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was shortages of toilet paper. It was insane. People were going nuts and grocery stores and, and were, were just running out of toilet paper. Was there anything like that in, in your parts of the world? That's funny that you mentioned that because I was in Canada when, uh, when the pandemic started and I remember that I went to the, I don't know if I can name brands, but I went to Walmart, I went to Costco and all those places were empty. There were not like no toilet paper. That, that was really crazy. Um, here in Mali, um, I don't know if there's something really unique or really crazy. But um, even though people are still skeptic about the disease, um, I think it did create some kind of fear, right? And there's a lot of studies that have been made um, trying to see what are the medication that we have right now that could be used to, um, to cure the COVID-19. And some of the studies presented the um, the malaria medications such as chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. Um, and people were saying that it might work to actually cure the COVID-19. And this, those, those medications are really, you can find them everywhere. You can go to a drugstore, you can find them. You can even go into the street and you're gonna find women selling those kind of medication. So what we saw here in Mali is that a lot of people actually went to the drugstore 
to buy this medication and they were doing some kind of auto-medication or some kind of prevention treatment just to make sure that they won't have the COVID-19. That's really, I mean, you know, when, when you have, when you have a type of a fear, you, it actually leading you to do all type of things, right? But this is actually a way for me to pointing the finger of like another issue in terms of automedication. This is something that is really normal here. It's not really uh, accessible to everyone to go see a, a doctor or and have some kind of prescription. So a lot of people just go with automedication. Oh, I don't feel good. I'm just going to go to a drugstore and go buy something. I know it's going to make me feel good. Has that led, because you're mentioning the malaria medication, has that led to any shortages for actual needs for malaria medication, like legitimate needs? At the beginning, yes. Uh, at the beginning, when you went to a drugstore, sometimes people were like, well, we are out of, the, out of this medication. Um, but at the same time, the, the malaria is something, it's a disease that you can have it from January 1st to, this, to December the 31st. So it's really, um, people are always ready for that. And, and I think that the drugstore also did some kind of, um, took some action to make sure that they had the, the right amount of medication in their, in their stores. Gotcha. It's kind of like a little bit like cough syrup or, or something along those lines in Western worlds for our cold. Ex- and- it's exactly that. But the thing is that those medications are, are antibiotics. So, so normally you should be more, uh, more careful Hold on a second. Hold whenever on a second. you... Hold on a second. You're saying, saying that in your pharmacies in Mali, antibiotics are available just on the shelf? You don't need a prescription or anything? Yes, I know that in Canada, it's not the case. You really need to have a prescription, but in Mali, no, you don't. You can go to the drugstore, you don't need to have a prescription and you can have it. Same in Pakistan. And in Mexico. Yeah. Really? <laughs> the same here in Nepal. Really? Oh. <laughs> okay. Ha- oh, okay, so I, I got I to take a bit of a, 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 a tangent off of this. Because obviously, <laughs> at least I, the way I was raised, and I do have a health education background, the overprescription of antibiotics has led to a lot of different diseases. How is that managed? It's not. Oh. <laughs> I would say it's managed very well. You know, the, the pharmaceuticals are so smart. That's why in our country, the people believe less to the doctor than a, someone who sells medicines. So they, they believe that... The, the pharmaceutical companies more not than the, company, the doctors? Not the is that companies, what I heard uh, the someone who, like, who sells medicine. The pharmacists. The because the pharmacists give a higher dose than the, than the doctors. So then the higher dose gets, you know, it's cure your disease very quickly. Maybe it may have a future consequences on your health, but you, you are sick, you go there, get the medicine, you eat it, you sleep overnight, tomorrow morning, you'll be fine because they, they always sell you overdose. <laughs> well, that's not the, the right way to say it in English, that it's, they'll sell you an overdose, but I understand <laughs> the spirit of the, of the answer. <laughs> There's also a massive issue with, with uh, fake drugs, Richard, and, you know. Uh, fake I've, drugs, like, like, like sort of like yeah. on the street type of like antibiotics. Drugs, because, yeah. Oh, wow. Massive problem. Is it just, oh, go ahead, Eva. In here in Mexico, um, I mean, uh, building up on what Zoe was, was stating, we also had what the biggest problem was people going 
I'm buying a special med used for um, multiple sclerosis. So there was a national shortage and people who really needed that medication to function did not have it. So we saw tons of campaigns all over Facebook saying, hey, I'm a multiple sclerosis uh, patient and I need my meds. If you bought it because you thought it was for COVID, please, you know, put them out there so that we can get to them. And it was a major, major uh, problem. That and some other meds that are can like cancer related for le leukemia. So the shortages that we saw were not only like uh, preoccupating because it was, I don't know, certain kind of foods like tuna, canned tuna or whatever, or toilet pa paper, but actually medications that without them, people were really going to suffer and they could put a halt into their progress of getting cured of a very nasty disease. So is this you're saying this is prevalent in Mexico. I mean, we're not just talking about antibiotics. We're talking about some very specific medication. And I just got to ask this question real quick for you, Ava, which is like, is cancer that prevalent? Or I thought you guys had like socialized healthcare in, in Mexico and you would not need to, to buy counterfeit leukemia drugs. Like, sorry, explain to me that scenario a little bit. Well, you know, corruption in our health system is so bad that we had a, a governor of a certain state providing uh, drugs for, for cancer for kids that were proven to be just salt water. So it, it's that bad. So uh, when, when you start seeing people that are more privileged and that have more funds and somebody states that that's a potential cure, they'll just go and buy it. Wow. This is, this is you know, my mind's just been blown a little bit. You, again, you hear the stories in the States of people getting bills for like $500,000 for doing an emergency visit. But I never thought in, in your parts of the world that, that you would have to buy cancer medication off the street. Off the street or off the, the, the pharmacy. Uh, also, you know, we're supposed to have, you know, a good public uh, healthcare system, where, where, which we don't. Yeah. And there's a lot of corruption there too. So when people don't have access, not only to health, services but to information things go wrong really really fast so this pandemic plus an infodemic plus corruption in the healthcare system has made mexico right now be i think right now we're at number three worldwide on deaths covid related and things i just sent blair this article where it was shocked the government saying that the curve won't die down until June of next year. Yeah. So we're seeing, you know, the government's just putting their hands down and saying, I cannot handle it. And this is very preoccupying, not only because of the authorities' attitude, but also the citizens and how irresponsible we're being sharing certain kinds of information that put people's health at risk. Blair, you're the one who sort of brought up this issue of counterfeit drugs. I, I just want to give you an opportunity real quick to talk about sort of your experience in Pakistan or at least in Islamabad about how the pandemic has affected perhaps other things in your region, like, for example, counterfeit medication. Yeah, I mean, counterfeit med medication is a, is a massive issue that the standards uh, across many countries for you know, regulating Things like drugs are, you know, are low, as as ever pointed out. There's tons of corruption within the health system. Um, I think, you know, even in normal times, the estimation is that 20 or 25 percent of 
of money that's spent on healthcare goes missing, even in the developed world. Um, lots of issues with this, you know, either le legally or le illegally. You know, there's there's outright corruption, but there's also you know ways that the health companies lobby to maintain certain rules or certain standards that benefit them and not necessarily the public. Developing countries often amplified significantly. So there are huge issues. Although I have to say, I was just talking to to ever about this about COVID nineteen testing, and we went for a test. Uh, in Pakistan the other day, and it was it, it was private, but it was a roadside test. We went to a a van, got a test very quickly. It cost us about twenty dollars, and we got the test online. They sent us a text message, and then we checked it online within twelve hours. So it was actually very quick and, and efficient. That that still isn't very affordable, you know, for everyone, and it's certainly not widespread enough. But that seems very different to the situation in Mexico, and I imagine many other countries these days. So some things are are beginning to work well, if even, you know, in small ways. Well, well let, let's stick with you for a moment, Blair, uh, because I want to go back to the original question that I asked uh, D'Souza, which is the weird trends that came out of the pandemic, like toilet paper shortages. Is there anything along those lines that took place in Pakistan or Islamabad? Uh, in terms of sort of shortages of of physical goods, I, I don't think there was in a, in a huge way, actually, in the same way there, there was in some other countries. The one interesting thing I would point out about, about Pakistan is the religious dimension of all of this. And the government there didn't close down religious institutions at all. There's a very strong religious lobby. All of the mosques uh, were kept open, even, you know, even during any lockdowns, the, mos the mosques were still open. You know, unfortunately, the beginning of this overlapped with with Ramadan and, and Eid, big, big, you know, religious uh, events in, in the Muslim world. And um, and that has spread the the virus significantly. And, and I think that, you know, is is unlike some other countries, even, you know, some deeply uh, Islamic countries that, that said, listen, you know, clearly going to mosques, you know, and having lots of people in one place, particularly in, indoors, is, is going to be a challenge. So... That, that is one element, I think, of, of things in Pakistan that is, you know, has made this a bit more political and a bit more difficult and has certainly led to the spread of the virus. And Narayan, uh, same question for you. Have there been sort of any unique trends or, or panic buying or anything along those lines that's, that's, like I said, unique in Nepal as to what came out of the pandemic and the lockdowns? Uh, yes, I think... We, we, we didn't have much shortages of toilet paper because in this country, very few people use toilet papers, otherwise they use water. But stuff like, you know, food, the regular, uh, you know, uh, foods, those were uh, shortages. Uh, it was very artificial. So, and also people began to rush into departmental stores and they're like yeah. a lot of, uh, you know, price gagging and, you know, overstocking uh, issue. And another funny thing is that, you know, the unique um, thing that, that happened in Nepal is lots of rumors around what to eat and what not to eat. So stuff like garlic, turmeric, and warm water, uh, you know, were, were, were sold out very quickly because everybody thought that. It well, from my understanding, garlic is, it heals everything. You rub it on your temple and it'll get, <laughs> you'll make you smarter, I think. Yes. Absolutely. And this is our traditional medicines too in Nepal, uh, you know, people use a lot. And then uh, the interesting thing was people, the only thing we didn't have a shortage is a meat because people didn't want it to meet, eat meat. And because the, 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 the news was that the, the COVID 
cases split from the meat market in China. So people are often eating meat, and even in I I did not eat meat like for a, for you know for two weeks or three weeks, and then we started meeting. And now if you go, people are so you know starving and they're so like craving for meat. And I think these days you can see the longest queue in the meat shop than before. Yeah. And there's another shortage where also the medicine. So people mm-hmm. uh, were going out and buying like basic medicines for like body ache and you know the weather medicines, uh, you know uh, sort of cetamols and you know etc. Yeah, you're you're trying to grasp at anything to help you out that you think will help, right? It's, but I want to ask a question for all of you real quick: is in Western parts of the world, there's been an, a large anti-mask movement. People are very much opposed at wearing masks and politicians and heads of government are now instituting mandatory mask wearing when you're indoors. Blair, you're mentioning how mosques were remaining open. I'm assuming a lot of the people there were not wearing masks. Um, but talk a little bit about sort of your particular regions and, and how mask usage is being viewed. Let's go back to Dusuba. We haven't heard from you in a while. Oh, well, I'm here. <laughs> uh, okay, so about the mask. Um, so, so when when that situation happened, um, the the pandemic, we had uh, so in Mali we had a lot of people. I don't know how we call them, but people who do the the sewing, um, sewing, yeah, yeah, exactly. They were making masks. So, yeah, yeah. so I could see a lot of my friends. They actually decided to do those masks and to and start selling them. So it went really fast. So you could see in the street people starting to to sell the mask and to wear those. Then what happened is that the president, uh, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, did an announcement on the, the national TV saying that he's going to, he's launching a program that is called One Malian, One Mask. So the goal was really to create um, or to, well, to, to create and to provide one mask to all of the population in Mali. And I thought that was really a great idea because we have to think, I, I mean, in Mali, people cannot buy those, uh, those um, the, the, the one that you throw every day. That, that, that would be too much. Um, so for me to have like reusable mask, it's a good way to protect yourself because then you can go back home in the evening, wash it, and then in the morning, just wear it again, right? So that was really a great idea, but unfortunately, it did not happen. So he made the announcement, but never executed on it. Exactly. And, um, and, and that's really unfortunate because I think that it was kind of, um, I think it's, it, it was, well, I don't want to say that it was an easy project because, you know, I'm not the one implementing, the, the, implementing it, but uh, it was for me a good way to actually sensitize and raise awareness towards the population about the importance of protecting yourself. And it would have been a great way to actually provide something to the population. And again, those kind of fake promises, it's, it's again, building a gap between the government and the population. And a lot of people, and even myself on my Twitter, uh, actually send a message to, gov- to the government to see what is happening with that project. We've seen some images of uh, masks being distributed in some different areas, but I can tell you that whenever you go into the street, you don't see people wearing masks. And when you ask them, they say, well, we never heard about it, we never saw it. 
so so that that's really um that, that's really unfortunate i think it would have been great for me it would have been great to have to have that action taken by the government to actually show that they care they 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 care about the population and they want to do some action to really protect them because they know they really know that most of the population cannot not only people really they are septic about the about the disease so that's the role of the government to actually raise awareness and provide different type of tools to actually protect the the, the population i, I want to ask you a question real quick though before we move from your perspective which is is there a general moral philosophical you know argument against wearing masks in mali like at least in western parts of the world it's like it's my body it's my choice i don't want to wear a mask it's not a, necessarily a health discussion it's more like a moral or philosophical discussion about masks or or would you say that most people in mali have no objections whatsoever about wearing a mask they just don't have one i think that so first of all, people don't have the mask. It's not everybody that has one. People that do have a mask okay. here, what, what we call them is that we call them dust cover because there's a lot of dust here. Yeah. So people that are, that are riding motorcycle, you're gonna see them wearing a mask. So that's, that, that's already something that is, that, it, that, ha, that is being done, that has been done before even the COVID-19. But now when you are talking to people saying, well, you guys should wear a mask to protect yourself against the COVID-19, the answer is really, I don't have a mask. And second, second is, I don't believe in COVID-19. So I don't need to wear a mask. And I've, we, we did some activities in the city where we're talking to people and we're actually giving them masks. And there is only two people that we saw that were already wearing a mask a woman and her and and her daughter and we actually uh, went there and and talked to talk to them and she basically told me that whenever she was going to the market people were like but what are you doing with that like why are you wearing a mask do, do you really think that covid 19 is here come on now that, it's that's not here. Uh, unfortunately i think a theme about the pandemic that you're gonna that we're seeing internationally and i i do want to offer this real real quick for you Desuba. The Canadian government, and one of the very first things that they did, because there was mask shortages around here, uh, they, they put out an instruction manual on how you can create your own mask from an old t-shirt that you no longer wear. So I don't know if you have access to that, but yeah. if you want, I'll gladly forward you those links. And maybe it can be a, a tool in your arsenal for, for creating masks in, in your <laughs> Definitely. country. <laughs> um, Eva, how are things in Mexico when it comes to mask wearing? Like, once again, is there sort of a moral block in wearing them because for whatever X reason, or are people generally adopting the usage of the masks? When the, when the pandemic started, when we f were first confined, like the first week, we did see an, an actual orchestrated campaign by civil, civil society regarding really? the use of the mask. But then yeah, but then when when the World Health Organization started saying yes, it's useful, then people started saying no, we shouldn't wear them. Uh, why why are they telling me what to do and everything when when havoc? So right now, uh, what we're seeing it's both civil society, even local artists, doing stuff to help people understand that it is useful to a certain extent. So even to that certain extent, you should take care 
of others, even if you don't want to, to take care of yourself. So right now you cannot go into the shops without it. Uh, you're not supposed to go into public transport without it. But we're seeing more and more people not knowing how to wear them and wearing them below their nose yeah. or in their neck or whatever. So communication is, is quite important. I've seen some amazing stuff by, by two social entrepreneurs. One of them is Carla Fernandez. She's an amazing activist that uses fashion as a way to push her um, social justice agenda forward. And she actually created face masks that resemble the um, indigenous people from different regions, like masks using Rachel. So you see the Jaguar mask and whatever. They're beautiful. And they are to raise funds for these uh, communities. And then there's Crea, led by Leticia Jauregui. And she's actually doing embroidered face masks from, from Chiapas and Oaxaca. So they're really, really beautiful in a way to make a fashion statement out of something that people might not feel so cool about. So everybody's like putting in their two cents. And um, for such a crowded city and such crowded areas, I think that it is super, super important. And we see that, but we also see other groups saying, it's against, you're, you're meddling in my own personal space, my own personal life, when much like you were saying, mm-hmm. it has become political. Even to an extent of, of the face mask symbolizing uh, the government shutting us up and not oh. want, wanting to tell the truth. So the face mask does have this emotional uh, charge to it. So it's that, That's such an interesting thing. I never thought about it that from an artistic perspective, it, 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 it actually feels as though for some people that the mask is shutting down this potential dissent. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's important because in a lot of the um, like marches and whatever, all of the protests and demonstrations, uh, especially regarding gender issues uh, and the, the desaparecidos, the, the, the people who have been disappearing for different reasons in the country, putting tape in your mouth or, or your own hands or something, it's a way of remembering that, that yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. wants to shut us up. So it, it has a political charge, an emotional charge, and it has been very complicated to, to control that narrative here in Mexico. I can, I can imagine. Uh, real quick, Blair and Narayan, we, we're already running short on time, and I really want to talk about systemic discrimination and, and class issues in, in parts of your country. Is there... Anything particularly substantially different or unique in your countries when it comes to, to mask wearing? I have a, <clears throat> I have a perfect segue uh, to go into this systemic discrimination. So when, you know, the pandemic started, you know, the max, wearing masks is a not, not a new culture here, like in Mali, very dusty country. Mm. But since the COVID started, we had, a, we had an issue of killing Dalit, you know, the untouchable communities, so-called, you know, untouchable communities. So people are killing. So Dalit. What, what was that term? Dalit. Dalit is like they're like communities, so-called communities were untouchable. Okay. Is, you know, in the caste system, so they are the lowest uh, ranking uh, people. Uh, you know, who are not married to higher caste people or, or touch foods, or they're untouchable. So there's uh, and and there, then there was a massacre of, massacre of you know killing of like six or seven young Dalits because they wanted to marry a higher caste girl. So, but later on, there was a big movement against this discrimination and killings. So the few creative artists, they come up with, uh, with a max uh, and writing a Dalit life matters. Mm. So then pe- people began to wear that, that max 
uh, you know, writing is like a black life matters. It's like a Dalit life. Yeah, matters. yeah. So to so, so, become a tool for, you know, raising a voice, even though you're waiting max, but still cannot speak, but you can write it there. Okay, so they really adopted that, or, or not adopted, but adapted that message for the, wow. Yeah. And, 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 and in your parts of the world, obviously there are strong political tensions between Nepal and, and China. And how, how does that manifest itself within sort of Kathmandu? I'm assuming there are Chinese people in Kathmandu. Am I wrong in thinking this? Yep. No, you're not. So, so how do Nepalese and, 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 and Chinese people sort of interact with each other when it comes to businesses and work? Is there a lot of tensions individually or? No, we don't. We don't. It's not visible yet, but there's a, there's a, it's been a new phenomena that the Chinese began to move into Nepal for businesses and tourism. Though it was not, okay. it is not a new thing. So before we had a very, very, very good and in, 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 intimate relationship with China because of language and culture, open border. But in China is a new thing, even though the Nepal and China had a very long history of friendship. But the, in, in terms of regular, you know, interactions and in the daily exchange of ideas and culture and, and goods and services is, is, is a new phenomenon. Since this, this Chinese product bec- becomes so, you, you, you know, ubiquitous so nepal is not an exception because it's the next door so mm-hmm. we used, you know i don't know if you've been to nepal or not before but uh, those who come to nepal 10 years before and now will clearly see that how chinese began to start their uh, businesses in some of the hot spot in places in Kathmandu. so you can see all those flashy light red red flags and sort of creating a mini china or chinatowns uh, which never had it before but is there tension between, say, like, will, for example, a Nepalese individual go into a Chinese shop and, you know, say, get out of my country and, no. and, and that kind of stuff? Or is it no, just, we don't no, have eh? it. Uh, at least as okay. far as I know, we don't have it. Maybe there is some issue yeah, at, at a very small scale, individual level. But Nepal generally is a very, very, very welcoming and nice country. So until and unless there is huge issue with somebody uh, you know, trying to cheat or, or trying to criminalize, there won't be an issue. So we don't have that issue yet. Of course, at the political level, China is more now becoming more vocal than, than India. Traditionally, India being one of the very influential country in, in, in Nepal, but now with the China coming with a, with a soft power, you know, uh, diplomacy. And, and Dasuba, uh, moving on to you in, in Mali, how has the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States sort of either affected your country or how it's manifesting itself? Because I, don't, I, don't, I, mean, I know there's a lot of different ethnic groups in many different mm-hmm. parts of Africa in general. And, and sometimes those tensions are very much present. Yeah, so um, here in Mali, we, we've seen some, some small demonstration of support towards the Black Lives Matter, and it's mostly in the, um, in the artistic, in the artist world, where um, we've seen a lot of people making, how do you call that? In French, it's called slam, but in English, it's called spoken words. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah, spoken word poetry. Exactly. And, yeah, slam is a Exactly, yeah. in yeah. supporting the, the Black Lives Matter. But it's not like um, what we've seen in France or in other countries where you had people that were actually protesting in the street and showing how, how they were supporting the, the, the movement. 
So um, it, it we had some small demonstration towards the in, in support of the, the Black Lives Matter, if you can put it like that. But the, and what about just general race discrimination in, in your parts of the world? Or um, I know from my understanding that the issues a lot of times in Africa, and we're mentioning a little bit with Narayan in, in Nepal, is it's more about the classes. There's a lot, there's big, huge class divide. But also, know, like I was saying, in Africa, there's a lot of small ethnic tribal mm -hmm. groups with their own culture, with their own language. And sometimes they come in urban centers and that can raise a lot of temperatures and a lot of tension and a lot of emotions. Or is that just sort of Hollywood talking to me right now and ah. I'm just doing stereotypes that don't exist? I wish it was, but it's not. Mm. <laughs> it, it is a reality yeah. in Mali as well. Um, I mean, social discrimination, well, um, systemic racism that leads to social discrimination is a reality in Malian society. And it's maintaining some group above others. Um, so like Narayan mentioned, he, were talk, he was talking about like a caste system. In Mali, we do have that, and it's a caste system within and between different ethnic groups. So you have that between mm. ethnic group, but inside one ethnic group, you have also those kind of differences. And, and before, we, we had that, like, it's, it's been a long time that we, we had that, and it's really, it's a way of, you know, social organization where you have a specific specific function that is given to each group and here in mali for example uh when you come here people are going to ask you for your last name because your last name tells it all by your last name we know if you are like a noble or if you are um what we call here a griot for example a griot is like a, an historian a storyteller a singer it's somebody that has an important role in the society because they are responsible of the oral tradition. So for example, there are some specific last name you already know. And, and here your first name really doesn't matter. Your last name really tells it all. But just to give you a specific example, um, there is, and this is probably something that a lot of people don't know, but slavery is still, is still here in Mali. But I'm not talking about slavery as we know in uh, what happened in the United States two centuries ago. I'm more talking about in terms of social organization, they have, there is like specific group that have been, uh, let's say for example, at the beginning of the last century, their grandparents have been captured in, in some type of war. And whenever they are captured, they are coming to another village and they are becoming the slave of people. And mm. this is something that is still going on, but not in the big city. You always, you will find that in really like the small area in, for example, in the region of Kai, that is at the border, that Shiro border with, the, with Senegal. And, I, and I'm actually come from that region. And this is something that you can find also in the northern part of, um, of Mali. So those people that we call slave, um, and again, you don't have the right of death on those people. I just want to clarify that because it's really important. But those people have a lesser place in the society. They have, they have no possibility of holding position of responsibility within the community. They do not participate in the decision-making process. Um, they, have, they are assigned to specific role, and they cannot 
for example, get married with people from another group, foreign, from another caste. And obviously, in this kind of situation, there is a lot of abuses that comes with it. And, and lately, thanks to the, to the social media, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of practices and a lot of cases that have been reported. And we, we've seen a lot of people that are being violated, people that are um, being, they, they basically, some people are demanding their freedom and some people refuse to give them that, 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 uh, that status. So, so would you say, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, I'm sure you probably have uh, a few questions about what I just said. <laughs> I, I do. And I just want to ask real quick because we only have about 10, 15 minutes left before okay. we have to wrap this up. Um, is the, so would you say that the, the Western movement to resolve the issues of social discrimination and systemic racism, do you think it has impacted your movement for equality and fairness in Mali or in other, like in, in even in Africa in general, like has it mobilized or activated or, or the community at all around these issues or is it pretty much the same as it always been? Mm, well, the, to, to be honest, that, that problem of modern slavery, as we can call it here, um, it is something that we, we heard about way before that movement happened. But definitely uh, in, in, the, in the news or in social media, I have the feeling that because of that movement, we hear a lot more about it. There's like okay. a lot of discussion that are being made on that subject that you, uh, that you can find on YouTube. And, and people talk a little bit more about that. And they talk more about it simply also because there are some different organizations of Malian that lives in France that are doing a lot of, uh, we're raising a lot of awareness about the specific issues. And why organizations that are based in France? Simply because there's a lot of, that, that issues is really generalized in a, a specific ethnic group that we call Soninke. And there's a lot of Soninke people in Paris. So, um, so there's a lot of organizations that are based there that are doing a lot of action so that, so that the government can really do something and recognize that something is, is happening so that they can really take some legal measures to fight uh, this issue. And, and I want to move on to Blair now because um, in the last, well, in the last few months, we know there's a lot of tension between Muslims and Hindus in India and in Pakistan, but in the last few months, this issue of the mosques and bringing Hindus inside the mosque for prayer and so on has really, I think, sparked a lot of even more tension in, in your country. Can you, can you speak about that a little bit? Or am I completely off the mark? Like, enlighten us on, this, on these matters, please, Blair. Well, I you know, wouldn't in any way want to speak on behalf of you know, Pakistanis. Um, we, can, we can definitely you know, bring in my Pakistani colleagues at some point to to talk mm. about this, but but of course you know in Pakistan as in every other country, um, there are issues of discrimination. There are minority groups that that, as Dasuba pointed out in in Mali, do not have access in any way to power or resources, and whose voices are not heard and who are mistreated by law, uh, you know, and by society in, in ways that are really really damaging uh, and really unfair, and, and in ways that we need to. To try and fix, you know, in Pakistan, those kinds of communities include, you know, religious Muslim religious sects that are minorities, um, but also Hindu Hindus and also Christians, and you know, and, and there are, 
you know other of course other kinds of people in society too that we that we work with like transgender people for example um mm. who who are of course discriminated against um and and we as part of the accountability labs work really understand accountability as accountability for everyone we we can't just have accountability for certain groups of people um so inclusion is is a really really important part of what we what we talk about and what we support and, and what we practice um in pakistan as in you know every, everywhere else because because unless everyone can have their voices heard and and their needs attended to and their their rights respected we are not going to be able to create societies that are that are stable and secure and and fair and transparent. So that is certainly the case in Pakistan as as it is everywhere else. And the same question that I asked the Suba for you which is has the sort of the civil movement that's been happening in the last few months in, in western parts of the country of the world has it helped at all in Pakistan in terms of mobilizing or activating people and in resolving these matters or is it is just sort of noise in the background? Obviously in, in Pakistan you know the the ethnic and racial dimensions are are very different so you know i think i think kind of the way that it's emerged specifically you know in the us doesn't doesn't re- resonate in quite the same way but but of course as i mentioned there are deep issues of discrimination that you know that that people have been thinking about and trying to change for a long time and there there is a movement in pakistan that that actually started several years ago called the ptm uh, movement which is uh, of the the pashtun people from from the sort of north west part of the country um who have been discriminated against for a long time and have been fighting for their rights really forcefully over the last few years and you know so i th- i think to some degree that that has now aligned a little bit and there's there's definitely some you know some energy there and and some important changes that that need to be made but but i think you know the the situation is quite different yeah i i would imagine as well eva you're in mexico are there racial tensions within its own sort of group or is it just like much like Busuba was saying it's more and and, and Narayan was saying it's more of a class issue enlighten us as well well the first thing that i have to say is that we have to remember how how our country came to be came to be as it is so you know europeans coming over and killing or decimating the indigenous population yeah i mean what else so racism is so embedded in inner culture and it's it's spoken about by academics and researchers as uh, an open wound mm-hmm. a wound that has never healed and it's so painful that people don't even talk about it so for the past decade we we have seen things starting to change uh, we we have as a as a partner this uh, ngo called pigmentocracia pigmentocracy so for more than 10 years julio vallejo has pushed forward the the racial agenda regarding skin tone and and facial features. Well, so I want to make sure. So I, I want to I want to be clear. Are you sort of saying kind of like the best example I can use here is that there are very dark skinned Brazilians and light skinned Brazilians? Are you talking about sort of the, that sort of within the Mexican community? There's different skinned Mexicans that may be that may look more Mexican than say one with European traits. Yeah, but even more so be- because there are certain communities that that remain mostly dominated by by different tribes. So even within Mexico and even within indigenous tribes, you have different facial features and different uh, skin tones. So pigmentocracia what it's meant to to relate to is how skin color determines your social mobility chances. 
So uh, there has been a lot of research in the past 10 years, um, amazing and really, really sad, regarding how more opportunities people have if they're light-skinned or how children relate to themselves. So if you put a doll, you know, and say, who do you look like? They will reach for the wider skin uh, toned uh, doll. So um, if you ask Mexicans, are you racist? They will say no, but then they won't talk about the, the African community within Guerrero and Veracruz states, or they won't talk about certain tribes in certain areas and, and their rights, or we're one of the world's most diversely diverse countries regarding language, but it it's until this presidency that we're seeing uh, as as a rule of law saying you know all of the COVID information has to be translated into all of the languages. Schools have to incorporate these these uh, other languages too and whatnot. You know, racism took center central stage almost two years ago with Jalitza Aparicio being nominated for the for several like movie awards and the movie Roma. So that's where people starting to talk about, you know, racism. And then she was featured in Vogue. Uh, two weeks ago, we had uh, w one of the first like top models in Vogue that came from from an indigenous uh, tribe in, in, in Oaxaca. So people are starting to talk about this, but things have been so sadly polarized that, for example, two weeks ago, I saw this picture of a car protesting against the president saying, I don't want to live in a country in which my, my maid has control of the agenda. So then when you combine race and class, you know, it, it just becomes a very sad situation. So I think the, the, the racial agenda or racism or the fight against racism in my country does have tiny flares that are related to things like Black Lives Matter. But it has been, you know, a, a very controlled and, and fight from a very tight-knit community that has felt themselves affected, even in privilege. So, you know, even if you come from an Ivy League university in the U.S., if your skin is darker, you will have less opportunity. So uh, it's a really tough topic. We do work with Pigmentocracy a lot, and we also work with a very dear colleague and friend of mine called Eugenia Martinez, which is a visual artist. And she, her, the beginning of her career as a contemporary artist dealt with the case system in Mexico. So she, she copied these colonial, uh, super old paintings that are hung in the Chapultepec Palace that has, you know, black and white means mestizo, this and this means girl and whatever. So all of these different cases that existed in in colonial times here here in Mexico, and always the people who was not white, the person who was not white, was painted in shadow because it's invisible and whatnot. So this is a topic that artists are are putting their eyes in, that researchers and academics are putting their eyes in, but public policymakers are not. So I think that the next frontier is taking you know not only uh, this issue in the public arena culturally, but also politically, and, and pushing better le legislations to fight discrimination in my country. A question for, for all of you, this, this sort of theme of if you're lighter skinned in Mexico, you're more likely to be able to mobilize socially. Is, is this something that's consistent with your regions of the world as well? Oh, yes. Oh, the, it's... Um... So here in Mali, and, and I think we can even talk about like the, 
the the whole region, like all of the the countries, like Senegal, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, there is um that tendency of bleaching people. People are bleaching bleaching their skin with like some type of creams so that they can have like a lighter a lighter tone. And it, it's really it's really into people's mind that the lighter you are, the better you will attract men. And I'm talking about women here. You will not only attract men, but you will be more successful. And, and even uh, whenever we talk about somebody that is beautiful, unfortunately, um, saying that you are light is actually a compliment. Meaning that mm. you can be ugly, but because you're light, you're saved. So it's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate, but this is um, this is a reality here. You know, it's funny. I, for some reason, I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy, and I went right to Eddie Murphy. And in one of his stand-ups, I think it was Delirious, he talks about, like, if you're a musician, you could be the ugliest man in the world and be a musician, and women will love you. It doesn't matter. As long as you can sing... Women will love you. And it's sort of the way you said, like, you can be an ugly white, being an ugly, lighter skinned Malian is better than being a pretty or handsome, dark skinned Malian. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, um, that, that's really unfortunate. But uh, th there is a lot of aware um, awareness that, that is being um, made on that subject. So I have the feeling that it's it's... You know, it, it's all about perspective as well. But there is a lot of people that are trying to put a lot of beauty in dark skin or nappy hair. And even the nappy hair movement, we can see that in the United States, but it's becoming really something really big. Because it's like when you talk about like singers and, you know, the jerry curls or what people used to have in the United States. Like if you were a singer, but you didn't have like, but you have nappy hair. It wasn't great, but if you have like jerry curls or you have a perm, well, you, you know, you're going to be all that. So it's it's something that it's starting to change, but unfortunately, it's really in people's mind. And whenever we're talking about change, it does take a lot of time. To gotcha. And I'll only have one minute for, for both Blair and Narayan here. In, in your parts of the world, is that sort of dark skin, light skin mobilization thing um, also pre present? It's it's an issue, but it's not a big issue as as in other countries, because we have like the people from lower caste are more brighter than anyone else. So, but they're still facing lots of discrimination. I think uh, here the issue is, of course, there's some issue about color, but the issue is about class, the the issue about the the caste, and another big issue is these days is about the religious minorities and the regional disparities. Like people in the down south are more darker and Indian looks. That's why we blanketly, you know, blanketly blame them that they're Indian origins and they're Indian. So, but they're very nice and beautiful people. So we have uh, this kind of, you know, situation. Gotcha. Well, this wraps up the entire series, part one and part two. It's been an incredible experience for me for a number of different reasons. Just the dynamics of the conversation, the content, having five of us on the call and i want to thank you all for for being so open and insightful with your answers so thanks again guys thank oh, you Richard. thank you thank very you, much. Richard.
Yeah, I just wanted to do one last comment because uh, from the last time we talked, so for from the part one of this podcast to the second one, in Mali, things went zero to 100. Um, we had a lot of um, anti-government protests and um, officially we are talking about 11 deaths, uh, but people are talking about 20, um, 20 people that have been killed during those protests. So, um, I, I mean, people are protesting because of the, the government, because, because of the corruption and they're asking for change. So for me, it's amazing to see people yeah. that are actually standing up for themselves and demanding their rights um, because really we, we need a change here in Mali. Um, but unfortunately, um, those, those protests have been repressed and we lost um, a lot of lives the, the past week. And tomorrow um, here in Mali is going to be um, a big day because we are going to pay tribute to all of those martyrs, if I can put it like that. And um, I just hope that those people are uh, haven't been killed for nothing and, and a change is about to uh, and, and a change is about to come. And this is something that really um, that this is something that is really important in the work that we are doing because we are demanding accountability, integrity. Uh, we want to have like we we are asking for a positive change in our society, and uh, something is starting here in Mali. I don't know where it's going, but uh, hopefully um, something good is going to come up uh, out of it. Well, we wish you the best of luck. Unfortunately, though, this podcast is going to air about one week after that that presentation or that that uh, demonstration that you guys will be doing. So I wish you the best of luck. And the fact that an organization like Accountability Lab exists is sign enough that more movement can be created, more action can be, ha uh, can be had, and changes can be made. So I want to thank you for, for all your awesome work, your tireless efforts. And please don't stop because we need people like you guys. Thank you very thank much. You. you know, keeping conversations flowing, I think it's part of of openness and yes we can talk about open government but we need to be open people <laughs> first so thanks so much for inviting us lovely to be here oh and, richard, and we need people like you richard <laughs> because this is a common battle i'm a dime a dozen you guys are not <laughs> oh uh, but again as usual i would like to thank our listeners for listening to the podcast and please leave us a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.